Hey, it's Connie from Cribs and welcome to this week's podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Now, let's get on to this week's episode. Hey guys, Dominic Neshi here from Cribs and today we have the great Evan Lucas. He's good friends with my business partner, Peter Esho. He's the chief market strategist from Invest Smart. Evan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me back, don't we? Mate, it's awesome. It's really, really good having you here. I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions up front about InvestSmart. I've been watching your uh, business for a little while. Um, can you just give me a bit of an overview on who you guys are, what you're about, um, and then I'd like to chat about one or two of your products if that's okay. Yeah, so InvestSmart, we were founded in, in 1999 by our CEO and still CEO, Ron Hodge. Um, his belief, and therefore everybody in belief, is that he wants all Australians to have access to good, very cheap financial advice and products. That's his goal. He wants every Australian ability to, to save for what they want to save for. Uh, and that is the core to his mission. It's what we do. It's also why we have, have bought out things like the Eureka Report that uh, Alan Kohler created in 2005. He's actually come back and is now also our editor at, at the Eureka Report. We also have the Intelligent Investor, which is all around uh, basically a, a boutique uh, investment firm with regards to particularly stocks. So we're a bit of uh, a bit of everything, but um, in the main, it, it's core to that idea of giving all Australians the ability to, to invest in their financial futures. And your question around the property side, part of what I do in terms of my role here is is to basically discuss with those people, you know, what do you want to do with regards to your money? Is it to save for a, for a first home? And a lot of them it is, and that's where our property fund comes into it. We want to sit there and go, okay, you want to you know, make that deposit, um, possibly trying to get to that 20% level so you don't have to get mortgage lenders insurance, et cetera, et cetera. We need to sort of help you get there at a speed, at inverted commas, and I say that deliberately because time is the essence to all of this. Um, your, your time frame is, is absolutely key. So we try and get you there with a level of risk that you're comfortable with, but also an understanding that you'll probably need to take a little bit of risk to try and get the deposit to the size you need it to be um, because just saving straight into cash will never be enough or never fast enough to actually get you to your goal of, of owning that first property or you know, if it's your second or third property, or investment property, whatever it is, you will need to um, sort of look at that nest egg and, and building it in not just through savings from your, your earnings, but you also will need to look at it from building it through investments that are uh, things like equities, that are things like property listed, things like fixed income that's also listed. All of that product is, is what we try and basically make sure that you can get access to um, at a cheap, cheap price. Yeah, I've looked at some of your products and, and I really like the way that you've approached it. And I've had clients that have invested in, in this type of scenario where you know, they're investing in a fund where it's got good growth strategy, where it might be, you know, six to 10% kind of a growth strategy, but then they're also, they invest a, a sum of money, but then regularly put in, you know, 500 or $1,000 per month into this space, which accelerates mm -hmm. their, the growth of that deposit. And effectively, a lot of the experts that I talk to, it's not, don't try and time the market, but it's time in the market. So, accelerating that savings capacity, getting that deposit and getting in the market sooner is super important. And especially now we're seeing how the market has started to rally and there are a lot of projections saying that it's going to move in the next 12 to 24 months. 
Um, we'll chat about that in a minute. But, you know, if there is, say, 10% growth in the market and you've used a 10% deposit, in the first year, you've basically made your deposit back. So it's about getting in as fast as you can do. It's also, yeah, it's exactly right. And I completely concur. Uh, we don't believe in timing. It's timing the market. The other part to put some total returns. So remember that, yes, your your investments, whether it's fixed income, your term deposit cash, or your equities, whatever it may be, when they pay you a, a dividend, that also should go back in. But not just perfectly illustrated, as you said, you know, putting your $500,000, $2,000 per month, whatever it is, into this deposit that you're getting towards, towards your house, but also reinvesting all of the returns the, the investment itself gives you back into it. It gives you that better average price, but it also means that over the medium to longer term, your overall return is significantly larger than just basically leaving it flat and hoping it does its own thing. Can I ask you, what do you think about people that, you know, you want to build a diversified um, platform um, and if you already own property, do you have issues with people then also investing in managed funds or shares that are exposed to property as well, like REITs and um, all that kind of stuff? No, and the reason for it, so let, let's take your scenario just a little bit further in terms of going down a little bit further. So you know, let's say you own property, let's say it's your own house, maybe you've, you've been lucky to also have an, an investment property. Um, REITs, so the you know real estate you know, infrastructure sort of scenarios, they are different. Um, industry um, REITs are obviously more likely to be commercial, they're more likely to have different kinds of exposure to businesses than you are with your property, which is more likely to be residential and therefore probably to a renter. Uh, that, that therefore is a different level of property, but at the same time, it is still all under the same banner of what we would call an asset class property. It's just across a different way. Another way to sort of point it out, it'd be like if you had Australian equities, you go into international equity? Well, yes, absolutely. So that, that's probably the way to, to answer that question. It's more, again, you've probably started it perfectly with, your overall position financially is everything that you have. So that is your personal home, your investment property, your portfolio in a managed fund or equities, in cash, et cetera. That total asset together is all of yours. And having a, you know, a weighting that's relatively even as you can across the, you know, the asset classes that are international, domestic equities, fixed income, so that's things like bonds and also corporate debt, cash and then also property is all part of what you should be thinking about um, and again it gets back to that, that first sort of part that we sort of discussed there Dominic around time in the market time is, is the other part of this is that the the way that you invest and the way that you have your money exposed comes down to your time if you've got a time frame of over seven years then you have the ability to look towards growth to look towards probably a higher level of, of inverted commas risk and when I mean risk things like equities that can have six months of volatility where they may fall you know, between five, even as much as 15%. But over the longer term, they're going to grow between 20 and 30 and 40%. And the market history tells us that. Now, that's, that's, that's why I can say that pretty confidently in, in explaining that. But at the same time, you don't want all of your portfolio to that level of risk and that level of volatility. 
And that's where asset allocation and diversification is, is, is absolutely paramount to what you do. Now, you're, you're obviously the chief market strategist. So this next question probably isn't so relevant to you, but just so for all the listeners out there, what are the minimum requirements to get involved with something like this? Because in, in a lot of people's minds and investors, when I talk to them, when I'm saying go and build a diverse uh, portfolio, they're thinking we need millions and millions to go and buy all these diverse assets. But from what I understand, you you can have your own home, your own property, and then diversify across a number of different asset class classes, especially managed funds, with yep. not a huge amount of money, really. Correct. I mean, for, for us, um, and it is something like that. Like, so we, I, I manage four diversified portfolios that go up the risk scale, so conservative, balanced, growth, and also high growth. They basically go across the asset classes, and the higher up the risk, the more percentage exposure you have towards things like international and domestic equities. And the minimum start for us is ten thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, in terms of getting in, and then you know, if you want to contribute, even as little as a hundred bucks a month where we are very much of the view that that is what we should be facilitating for you um, and building it up where we can um, to help you get towards that goal. Because even it's starting small, and to some people, $10,000 is a lot of money, and it absolutely is to some people, and that should be seen as that way, and that's how we view it, is that even starting with that size, if we can get that $10,000 to be $13,000 to fourteen thousand dollars without even seeing any additional income being poured in by the by the investor themselves, then we've done our job over a three to five year period. That's that's how we look at it. Now, you think about adding another zero on that, taking that ten thousand to a hundred thousand, that thirteen thousand is more likely one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. So that that's the the idea of, of exactly how you do that. That means therefore that you have got your exposures correctly. And again, we will point out very clearly that the investments that we do are straight into the overall indices. We are not here to be stock pickers. We're not here to go out and find some interesting private equity, you know, infrastructure funds that's investing in some form of new age technology. That's, we don't want to do that. That's, we, we know there are other people to do that and you can pay people to do that. What we are here to do is to give you the market returns that has been shown to be exactly as they are for over 100 years in the places like the US. Here in Australia, it's over 80 years in terms of what the ASX has been doing. If we can give you the market and the average market return in the ASX without total returns is around about 9.5%, total returns is about 12.5% per annum, then we think you should be getting that. And that's, again, what we try and do and what we try and replicate over and over again. So you're basically talking about index funds, is that right? Correct. Now, yeah. And that's, that's what my role is to do, is, is to get that. And this is the thing. The other part you've got to ask yourself as the investor is, what I want to do, I want to invest in property in the future. So is that four years away, three years away, what have you? It could be all of those time frames. If that's part of your goal, your retirement, a holiday, or as we've just been discussing, developing an overall portfolio. So the other part of this is, is the one that we always talk about is, is fear and greed in terms of that size. You can certainly go and find funds, manage funds that are accurately managed that have been returning 20 to 25%, but they are not guarantees of future returns. That's why you always hear that on TV or whoever you listen to. That 25% they may have done in 2019 is not guaranteed to be done in 2020, 2021, 2022. Um, and I say the same thing with an index fund. But what I can say is that I know historically the return 
of the ASX, of the S&P 500, of the DAX 30, etc., is 9.5% or 12.5% with regards to the US, and it's around about 10% with regards to Germany. But that is what I would expect over the medium term. Um, and history tells me that I don't have the volatility of being directly exposed to one equity. Example, right now, even you can look at what's happened to Westpac over the last couple of weeks. Mm. They were up 19.5% year to date, and then all this issue around Oldtrack has come out and they've lost it and some. Um, whereas the market can look through that because it's only around about sort of about 6% of the ASX is Westpac. And over the same period of time, the ASX has actually gone up. So you've not had that exposure. And the, and the big thing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong at any stage here, but with index funds, what's so beautiful about them, aside from these, you know, let's just call it uh, steady returns, is yep. the, the minimal cost to run these funds, which means that you're not raping and pillaging and fees and, and taking so much out of your client's correct. pocket. Because if they're, yep. at the end of the day, it's how much they net, not, you know, what the gross yep. fund performs, right? And, and we know that over the longer term, in the end, all active funds will return to the benchmark. Now, when we say benchmark, normally Australian um, equity active managers benchmark themselves to the Australian Accumulation Index or the ASX 200 or the ASX Small Cap, whatever it might be. They may outperform it once or twice, but over the longer term, they come back to it. And then getting to your point about fees there is that these guys charge you, you know, one, one and a half, even as much as 2%, which means realistically they've given you the market less their fees. Mm. So for us, we see that and we understand that completely. So the maximum fee that we have in our, in our what we call our cap fee is $451 per annum. So once you get to $82,000, you will not pay more than 451 So that's, that's how we flatten it out. Otherwise, it's 0.55 of 1% until you get to that, that level, which again is actually underneath the industry average. But we believe that once you're invested in the market, that you should be paying as low a fees as we can we openly tell you with index funds that they're not going to beat the market. We know that, which means we want to get you as close as we can to the market, um, as affordable as we can do it. And that, we believe, is a maximum fee per annum of $451. Man, I'm starting to feel like I need to diversify my assets. So before we go down that line, I want to do a slight pivot and talk more to your uh, area of expertise, certainly. Um Mm-hmm. Let's have a chat about interest rates if we can. Um, it's always on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's that monthly chat. Um, let's have a chat about the next rate. When do you think it will come in? But also, when do you think some of these rates will be effective and actually hit the market? Okay, that, let's take a lot of questions first because sure. I think that's the more interesting part of it is when do I think the rate cuts that are particularly the one that came in October comes through? I personally don't think it will. And the reason for it is that we are now getting to a level where banking is getting squeezed significantly on a cost level. So they have increased regulation from the Banking Royal Commission, as they should, considering what we saw out of the you know out of the whole scenario there. But the other way to look at it is this is they have to hold a certain amount, it's around about sixty five, seven percent of their capital on their books has to be retail. So that's your term deposit holders, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Those term deposit holders now have got record all-time low rates. Um, the average 12-month term deposit across the country at the moment is about 1.9%. Now, once you factor in inflation, which is currently around about 1.6%, realistically, the take-home of a term deposit holder is 03 So that's pretty unattractive in terms of return. So the money is starting to come out of the banks. On the other side... 
on the lending side, rates have come right down. Now, the, probably you should be seeing your standard variable mortgage rates being around about 3.5, 3.75. You should be able to get better than that. In fact, you should be looking at more around sort of 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, mm-hmm. depending on where you sit. Um, that difference between the 1.9 for the term deposit and the three and a bit percent is what we call your net interest margins that banks make. Yep. And they're starting to get to a point where they just cannot keep cutting the mortgage rate and the term deposit rate because the system's starting to crack because their borrowed money that they get from their term deposit holders is starting to flow out and they don't have enough money to lend out to the amount of lending that needs to be done and wants to be done. Yep. And that brings them to the wholesale market. So then the next part of your question around rate cuts, it's going to happen again. The market believes it's probably going to see the RBA cut rates to 0.5 or 1% by no later than May next year, more likely probably April or March, mm-hmm. considering the data that we've seen. Employment is starting to slow down. The last bastion that we had in this country with regards to not seeing the slowdown has started to crack. We saw it in September and the October numbers. The RBA has already said that employment is a major part of their mandate. They have to make sure that the employment is is increasing and, and therefore they're going to act. So it gets back to the you know, other part of the question, how do the banks deal with that? They probably will only pass through to the mortgage holder, I reckon personally, 0.1 of 1%. That's about as far as they're going to go with 25 basis points. Yeah, so just a fractional um, part of that's going to actually be passed on. But realistically, yeah. the rates are incredibly low at the moment. They're incredibly low. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the answer. Let, let, let's not sugarcoat it. 0.75 has come out of the cash rate, and realistically, most people have got around about 65 basis points of that. Mm. Um, I'm sure that you've got some memories as well, but I remember just back paying 7 8%, which was nuts. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Uh, and it was not even that long ago. I mean, if you look at it, you go all the way back to basically, we're talking 2011 here. Now, yeah, okay, it's eight years ago, but, no, it's not an eternity uh, right. in terms of, as you said, talking about getting a mortgage for seven and a half, eight, maybe even as bad as 9%, depending mm-hmm. on, on your scenario. So getting a 3% something is an incredibly low amount. Now, the catch with that is that it also means people are borrowing more and it does drive up pricing in things like housing. And that's probably the other part of this argument, right, is that since June, the pickup in the housing market has been pretty strong. It hasn't reached the kind of levels that we saw through the you know, the housing led recovery of two thousand thirteen through seventeen. Mm. But with what's expected from the RBA in twenty twenty and the kind of level of supply on the market, which is at levels that we haven't seen since two thousand and seven uh, sorry, two thousand and ten, which was almost a record low, all of those factors together are driving prices even further. Um, and this is going to be the question about overextending. Again, getting back to the first part of our discussion around diversification in your investment. Are you reaching for property, particularly already you know established property, because it's what you know, or because it's in your best interest for your investment, or is it because it just looks like the best opportunity that you can see right now? And that that needs to be part of your question. You should ask yourself as an investor, as a homeowner, etc. Is it, is it my best option for my overall investment scenario? Um, because that's that's the next question. Because next year, the other thing that we you know, if we had more time to talk about, it looks likely that the RBA will go down the route that we managed to not do during the global financial crisis, which was going into quantitative easing, mm-hmm. like what we saw in Europe, like what we saw in the US, like what's still going on in Japan. Um, that that will be an interesting scenario in Australia, and that's. 
I don't have enough time to sort of explain it, but again, getting back to the original idea around what the bank's happening, if the RBA can actually move, artificially move, the wholesale market, so the the listed corporate debt, etc., the rates on that lower, so the pressure on the borrowing side of the bank gets lower, they can then transfer through, in theory, a better lending rate again, and maybe even see a lending rate with a two-handle on a, on a more regular basis rather than some sort of special deal that's currently out there. Let me ask you a couple of things because you touched on so many interesting topics and every time you said something, a new idea or question I wanted to follow on with. But let me just reverse a couple steps because I've been talking to a lot of um, clients recently and I do cash flow analyses and I, I do some estimates and we put you know a, a good conservative rate into those cash flow calculators. I'm having some clients say, well, Dom, will the cash rate go up to 7% again? And how likely is that in what time frame? Like, should we be putting 6 or 7% in our cash flow calculators? Is that a, is that a real or practical mm-hmm. thing that you can see in the, in the not-too-distant future? No. Uh, and I, I say that deliberately and with confidence mm. because what would have to happen to see the cash rate back to there would be an absolute explosion in inflation and an absolute explosion in particularly things like wage growth. Mm. Um, And wage growth is a very, very slow-moving fish. Mm. So it takes a long time for wages to really move the dial to start seeing inflation come through. We're talking five, possibly seven years. Now, the example I give you on that is let's look at the US. So... The U.S. has seen its employment market fall to levels that have been something we haven't seen since the 60s in some parts of it, things like the unemployment rate. They're underemployment, but those that are working that want to work more, so part-timers, etc., is at the lowest level it's been since the 1950s, about 3.5%. Mm. Now, as that number fell, and it's been falling since 2010, Basically, around about 2016 was when we saw what we called the crossover, where wages that were rising during that period from 2010 to 2016 crossed over the underemployment rate. The underemployment rate kept falling, and then there was a rapid ramp up in, infl- in, in wage growth to around about 35 to almost 4%. Now, you and I would love a 4% rise per annum in our, in our wages, Certainly. but here in Australia, it's 2.3. The issue we have in Australia is that underemployment since data has been collected, is now at a record of 85 to 9%, and it just will not go down. It is stubbornly high. So why I say all that, getting back to your question, do I see rates at 7%? Absolutely not, because until that figure comes down to probably more around about 6 therefore wages can get towards that 3.5%, and therefore seeing inflation not only inside the 2 to 3% inflation band, but above it, then the RBA will confidently raise rates. But it just isn't doing that. If anything, it's going further and further towards accommodation. So I'm not surprised that your clients are confident enough to say that we're not afraid of a 7% handle. What you should be saying is, at the same time, there's a level of prudency to that. Mm. And so the, 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 you should always be providing yourself with the idea of, what would absolutely cap me out? Would a rate even of going up to four hit you at a level that you can't handle? Certainly. Four and a half percent. Pressure test yourself. I mean, that, right? yeah, exactly right. So that, that I think is why a lot of people are now arguing that point is we actually need to pressure test people at four and a half percent and pressure test at five percent because 
if you've now grabbed a level of debt that if the rates rise, everything that's happened this year was reversed, for example. We saw some V5 basis points come back into the cash rate over the next two years. What would happen in that scenario? And how much pressure would that put you under um, to actually you know, service the level of debt that you now hold? Completely agree. And I've got just, say, two more quick questions. Oh, not so quick, but... so. Can you can you touch on just briefly the unconventional monetary policy? Is that what you were just saying earlier? Um, yeah. Um, okay. Yep. So quantitative quantitative so easing. Yeah. Quantitative easing. So the reason it's called unconventional is so it'll be simplistically said in the media that the RBA is printing money. Now, technically, it is. So what it's doing is that it's making money, but it's what it does with that printed money um, that is unconventional, and how they use it is also what in my world, in the economic world, is, is unconventional. So they use that money that they've printed to actually go and buy certain types of products. Now, in the US, we saw that being US treasuries, so US sovereign debt, and mortgage-backed securities, so corporate debt that's exposed to things like residential and commercial property. Yep. Um, in Australia, we... Now, the reason I say all this, and if you are out there listening, there is a speech that's happening on the 26th of November by Philip Lowe, and he is going through this exact thing that I'm about to say in detail, in his level of detail. So if you do want to go and find out more about it, I highly recommend you go and read his speech. But in, in simplistic terms, in Australia, buying sovereign debt in the current scenario is not a reasonable idea. Why is that? Our current government, whether you follow the Liberals or not, and even Labor will do the same thing, neither side of politics is interested in ramping up borrowing. Neither side wants borrowing. So even if you reduce the, the borrowing cost of the government to very, very cheap, you know, 0.5 of 1% or 0.7 of 1% for 10 years, they're not going to actually go and take that money and invest and, and spend it in terms of what they're going to do with it, whether that was in infrastructure or what have you. They've, the government has said very clearly they've got a mandate to do X with a surplus and to do a spending scenario in infrastructure of Y. Mm-hmm. That's why it's unlikely. What they are likely to do, and this is what we're starting to hear, is they are likely to touch our corporate debt market, so our mortgage-backed securities market, which is very, very small compared to the US. Um, They wouldn't have to put a huge amount of money into it to move the dial. And what I mean by that is moving the current rate, which is around about 2, 2 2.25%, to probably about 1.5 to 1.75% for the borrowing costs of a bank to borrow through the wholesale market to then use that money to fund lending. And that is, that is you know, very, very quickly, very, very simplistic, and I say that deliberately because it's a lot more technical than that, basically what they're trying to think about doing and what they're setting up to probably do this time next year. Okay. Very, very interesting. And, and, and this is an absolute last question, I promise. Um, what sure. opportunities do you see in the next 12 months? Like if with everything that you know and understand – um, what are some some things that you'd be looking at or investing in with, with some keen attention? Okay. I can almost answer that very, very quickly in one line. So mm-hmm. and it's just that with what we're discussing. So everything in my view has been since the GFC comes down to the policy settings of central banks because, yep. and the reason I say that, this is my answer. Monetary policy in theory has one goal. It's to either make asset prices inflate or deflate. So when you accommodate, you're inflating. When you're basically looking to tighten, you're seeing deflation. Yep. And we have high level of accommodation. 
look at across all, it's not just property that you keep hearing about that's moving up from the cuts to, to um, from the house, sorry, from the interest rates. Equities are up 19% this year. If you look at fixed income at the end of last year, even they are up because things are slow. Overall, assets will probably continue to appreciate through 2020 and 2021 because changes to monetary policy, if they're going to change, they're going to become more accommodative. And where does that money go? It goes into investments. And that's probably the way to, to actually put it to you is that I would, again, be looking to diversify my overall investment towards a smoothed-out variable across the whole classes because I expect them to continue to appreciate in at least the interim period of 12 to 24 months. Sensational. Mate, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Evan Lucas, Chief Market Strategist from Invest Smart. Um, all of you uh, following, listening, pay attention to what Evan's up to. He's a very smart man. And, mate, thank you very much for jumping on the show. Dominic, thank you as always for having me. Yeah, great. Catch you soon, mate. See ya.